Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him, only him. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, you're so kind to give us the image of complete surrender to your will. Jesus models steadfast faith in the midst of temptation. Thank you for reminding us, especially in this Lenten season, that only you can satisfy. As your word says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We need you, Lord. This world needs you. Our families need you. Our will alone is not enough. We ask that you would guide us through the scripture, as Matthew points out, and through your Holy Spirit, to guide us in our own little sections of the world to resist the temptations that so often come, and to make this message of steadfast faith, to take this message to a world that so desperately needs it. Help us to grow in our discipleship with you, that we would confidently follow your commission to be disciples who make disciples. Lord, we continually thank you for the gift of Ryan and his family and the blessing he has on this church. Lord, I ask that you would give him the words that come from you, Lord, um, that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to see what you would have for us today, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. At some point when I was in college, uh, I picked up the guitar and I started trying to learn to play a little bit. And it was a long, painful process for anyone that was in earshot. But it was uh, it was a fun experience. And I'd always wanted to play the guitar, mainly because I grew up listening to, you know, Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and George Strait. And I thought, if you're really going to be a country music singer, uh, like obviously I was going to be, you needed to learn how to play the guitar. And so um, I tried lessons when I was a kid and it didn't take, I, I took one lesson, I think. And uh, I couldn't figure out the bar chord deal. And I was like, I'm never going to get there. Roger Miller is just leaving me in the dust here. I'm trying, but I'm not making it. And so I quit, but in college, I picked it back up 
And uh, one of the reasons I picked it back up is I'd always, I had an uncle uh, who played guitar. And he had, he had got a guitar when he was in, stationed in Germany during the Vietnam War. And so he brought this guitar back and he learned to play and he could play just all kinds of neat stuff. And he would play Tennessee flat top box, you know, and I would just sit there and watch him play it. And uh, so when I was growing up, I always wanted to do that. Well, uh, after he passed away, my grandmother later gave me his old guitar and it had been sitting in her closet for years and years. And in the dry, arid New Mexico climate, uh, among other things, it had cracked. It cracked all down the back. It cracked in the front. It cracked in the neck and it had a, it just had a lot of problems. And I thought it was a beautiful guitar. I want to get it fixed. So I took it to a violin shop in, in Lubbock. Somebody had recommended it and the guy fixed it and, you know, gave it back to me and it was just brand new, you know, and, and so it's still a beautiful guitar. And so I was fascinated with how he did that repair. And so one of the things I did during uh, the COVID months uh, was I picked up a few older kind of cheap guitars that had been cracked and busted. And I thought, well, I'm going to try to do a few guitar repairs. One of the things I learned that is guitars is not surprising. They crack in mostly the same places. One of the places they love to crack, you want a kind of a thin neck when you're playing because you don't want to have to reach around something that's like Schedule 40 PVC or something. So you want something nice and thin. You can move your hand up and down. And in order to get a thin neck, though, you make it, it's kind of vulnerable where the neck meets the headstock where the tuners are. That's a pretty vulnerable place and a pretty common place for guitars to crack. And so this guitar that I picked up had cracked there and I'm learning and trying to think about how I was going to repair it. I realized that someone had tried to repair it before by just putting a little glue in the crack, you know, just kind of a quick fix, a topical fix. And it just cracked again in the same spot. Any of you that have worked with furniture or you've done metal work or, you know, this is, this is a common thing. And so the quick fix didn't work in order to make a proper repair of this guitar. I would have to re injure the guitar. I would have to make the injury worse than it already is first in order to make it better. I would have to carefully and lovingly cut out a little section all around the crack so that a new piece of wood could be laid in there so that glue could adhere to all the sides and then it could be sanded and smoothed and brought back into where it would actually hold in that place and not crack again. Because all the topical fixes, it just cracks again in the exact same spot. And the beauty of repairing furniture, guitars, or a lot of things uh, is that uh, once you fix it right, it's actually stronger in that joint than it was before. So if it's going to crack again, it's not going to crack in that spot. Metal works this way, right? A weld, a good weld will never crack in the weld. It'll crack beside it because you've made it stronger than it is just by its natural properties. Temptation, I think, works in the same way. Uh, the devil is very strategic in tempting us. And we generally recognize temptations in areas where we are vulnerable. We all have these little cracks in our lives, things that have over the course of the years, there's erosion and there's injuries and things that we are more prone uh, to re-injury in those places. And therefore, it's a wonderful place for us to be targeted with temptation in our places of vulnerability. Uh, I had a professor in seminary that liked to talk about the fault lines in our character. And he would talk to pastors and say, you all have fault lines in your character somewhere. You need to find out what those are. And you need to heal those cracks because if you don't, that's just gonna be a place of re-injury for you and you're going to hurt other people because you're not dealing with your stuff. So um, these vulnerabilities, these fault lines, we, we all have them. And by the way, 
when we become disciples and when we begin to follow Jesus in the ways that we've been talking about, our temptation intensity, I was trying to think of a way to say that, like a, like a barometer, our, our temptation intensity actually increases it does not go down. You would think when you start following Jesus that the temptations would be less, that they would go away. But in fact, they get stronger and they're more frequent. And you go, gosh, why in the world is this harder than it was before I you know, got, got this whole thing started? And it's always been that way. And the reason that it is that way is because when we're following Jesus, we are a threat to the darkness. When we're following Jesus, we are a threat to these injuries that would seek to bring us down because we become agents of healing. We become like Jesus. We bring hope and we bring light and we bring strength and we bring peace. And these are things that the devil does not want to be existing. And so I love the way that uh, John Chrysostom said it in the fifth century. He said, who among you is even more tempted after baptism? You should not be troubled. It is for this that you have received arms, not to stand at ease, but to fight. We have been given this Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, not to stand at ease, but to fight. And so the battles that we find and face and find ourselves in, this is part of our work. So, And one of the great places that the devil loves to attack, as we see from today's text, is the devil loves to target us at a point of vulnerability where we are finding happiness and union with God, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Any points of contact and growth there are places that the devil would love to strike. This is what's at stake is our very relationship with God. Uh, you'll remember several weeks ago uh, when John Curtis preached and he talked to us about the, just the value of a relationship with God and how we have to nurture that. And, and just like we do any other relationship, this is what's at stake. And this is what the devil wants to disrupt is to interfere with that relationship, with that connection. So he'll target us at the at that point of union with God. He does this with Jesus, right? He goes straight to him. I mean, Jesus no more gets out of the waters of the Jordan River and hears, and with everybody else there, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, right? That father affirmation, the voice of God, the spirit descends in the form of a dove, and it's this beautiful, glorious moment. And immediately the spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness and the first thing that the devil says is, if you are the son of God, are you really the son of God? You know, and if you are, then I've got a little game I'd like to play with you. And so it's very common for the devil to target us in that place. If you're really the son of God, then why, why are you struggling so much with this particular thing? If you're really the son of God, then why are you, you know, doing this, that, or the other? Why are you not able to get this other thing figured out? Why are you having so much trouble at work? If you're really the son of God, I mean, if you're really one of Jesus' followers, then why are these things going on? The devil loves to attack us there at the place of our belonging to our loving Father. The devil sees this opportunity and goes to tempt the Son of God in the wilderness. And I think he finds a little bit of a surprise because he knows that Jesus is fully divine. He knows that he is the Son of God because he's seen He's heard the stories, and he's seen what Jesus has been up to. I think maybe what he didn't account for is that Jesus was also fully human. This is part of what we believe as Christians, that Jesus is fully God and fully human. The fancy theology term is the hypostatic union. It's a mystery just like the Trinity. Jesus is both hes fully God and fully man. And so we, that's why some people refer to him as the God-man. 
Uh, and so none of us have, those, have that particular existence, but that was Jesus. And he was fully human, which meant he was hungry. After 40 days of not eating, not drinking, he was hungry. And so the devil sees this and says, hey, what a great opportunity. This, is not, this guy's not like I thought he would be. I mean, gods don't get hungry. Gods are spirit. They don't have to eat. But this guy, he's out here, and he appears to actually be hungry. I'll try the old Adam trick. You know, I'll see if I can kind of get him to this. This should be easier than I thought. And so he promptly uh, begins to work with this temptation experiment on the Son of God. And he begins in very subtle ways. And by the end, he, his mask is off. And he's just, it's uncorked. Uh, I really want you to do this. Uh, and I need you to do this. And so the, he begins in a subtle way. And he says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. That seems like a natural good thing to do. If you fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and you're hungry and you have the power to do it, why not just do that? Why not command these stones to become bread? And Jesus resists by saying, uh, there is more to life, devil, than our physical hunger. There's actually a deeper hunger inside of us. And human beings don't live by bread alone but we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is our most core hunger and thirst. And this is how we get there. So I don't have to perform in this way that you've asked me to. I love the way that Henry Nouwen, uh, who died several years ago, but he, he wrote a book on ministry. And I love the way he talked about it. He, he kind of captured each one of these temptations and he gave it a a more modern label. And so he says that this first temptation is, is the temptation for Jesus to be relevant. For Jesus to be relevant. Jesus, why don't you just take care of this immediate need? Why don't you be relevant? You know, why don't you, why don't you be, do something great right here and, and be relevant? And we still see this today. And in, all of us that have been in ministry in the church and in our families, we see this temptation a lot to be relevant. Well, gosh, we wish we could do more things and we could do that and we could fix that and we could get it all done. But the devil is basically asking Jesus to operate on his terms. You do what I say in the way that I say it when I say it. And this is precisely what Jesus is resisting. He says there's more to the actual act. There's more to the miracle than just what it is. There's more than just the healing or there's more than just the words of God. But it's the way that these healings are delivered. It's the way that the Son of God is in ministry. It's how and why, which carries over into our ministry. It's not just the things that we do as a church, uh, but it's the way that we do them that makes us like Jesus. Right? We can do one thing uh, over here, and somebody else can do the same thing over here. One can be done in the way of Jesus, and one can be done not in that way. And one will be experienced as grace and healing. The other may be experienced as violence. You know, we, it has to be the way that Jesus did things and how and why, not just what Jesus did. The second temptation gets a little bit more obvious, but uh, the devil takes Jesus to the holy city, to Jerusalem, and places him at a high point and says, you know, look out over everything that's here. Uh, why don't you throw yourself off this tall building and, you know, let's, let's do something great because we all know in the Psalms, the devil says that it says that he will command his angels concerning you. God's going to take care of you. Why don't you just throw yourself off without a parachute and let's see what happens. And, and the, the angels are going to come to your rescue. 
the devil hears Jesus quote scripture and he says, I can play that game too. Uh, I know the stuff as well. So let's, let's try this. And, and he offers that to Jesus, an obvious temptation. But uh, now, and Henry Nouwen classifies this one as the temptation to be spectacular. And goodness knows that we've all been tempted to be spectacular in ministry and in our work. And we think, man, if we could just do this thing, then it would, you know, gosh, people would know about it and it would all, everything would just be great. Uh, the temptation to be spectacular is very, very strong in our culture. And Jesus responds, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, it's not that the angels are bad and the angels can very well have saved Jesus in that way. However, it was doing it on the devil's terms, on the devil's time and the devil's way. And that is not what ministry is. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm not going to test the Lord my God. Uh, just because you want to see something spectacular. So this is a great temptation in ministry. Uh, we see it all the time. You could pick on the mega church pastors, but it's a lot of people. You know, you see these antics, whatever the latest flashbang thing is, a smoke machine. Let's, let's do something spectacular, and then everyone's going to love Jesus. You know, it's just going to happen. And But again, it's not just what Jesus did. It's how Jesus did it. It's the way that Jesus ministers in the world. It's the way that Jesus made disciples. You know, Jesus didn't make disciples with billboards. He didn't make disciples with large crowds and just say, hey, here we go. He made disciples by taking 12 and then three and then gathering more around them and saying that, and showing them how to do ministry in very behind the scenes sort of ways. In fact, Jesus would say often, don't tell anybody about this until after the resurrection. Let's just keep this under wraps. We don't want a circus here. We want, we want people to be freed from their diseases. We want people to be healed. And we want to do this the right way. We want this to reflect God's nature in our world. Uh, I love what Mother Teresa said, uh, uh, kind of, I think, in this context. She said, I was never called to be successful. And when I read that this week, I thought, you know, it's, it's like she's saying, I was never called to be spectacular. Uh, many times in ministry, we're tempted to be spectacular. So I was never called to be successful or spectacular. I was called to be faithful. And in striving to be faithful, my life will be fruitful. And because it is fruitful, you could then say that I am successful. Isn't that great? I was not called to be successful. But what's most spectacular of, of all is the kind of fruitfulness that comes from faithfulness that starts with humility. And that is what Jesus is after. This is why he doesn't take the bait. He says, we're not going to play the test God game here. So he moves on to the last one, and again, you can see the steam is building, and he's been unsuccessful, strike one, strike two. The mask comes off, says, okay, here's the deal. We're going to go on a high mountain. You're going to see all the kingdoms of the world, if you can imagine that, and just say everything could be yours. You will be in control of all of this with the snap of a finger if you would just fall down and worship me. And Jesus responds by saying, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What's beautifully ironic here is that Jesus became this powerful. Jesus was this powerful. And Paul celebrates that in the great hymn in Philippians, where right because of Jesus' faithfulness and because he lays down his life, he is exalted. And so there's no name that is greater than the name of Jesus. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But that doesn't happen because he went up on a high mountain and made a deal with a shortcut deal with the devil. It happened because he laid down his life. 
even to the point of death, he was obedient. He did not hang on to his equality with God as something to be grasped and kept for himself. But instead, he laid down his life. He gave his life that others might live. And because of that, he becomes who we know him as, as Jesus the King. It wasn't the wrong idea. It was the wrong way. And Jesus recognized it immediately, even in his hunger, even in his thirst, even in his pain. This is the thing. Jesus is lonely. He's a human being. I mean, he's 40 days without people, without his family, without his friends. And he's lonely and he's hungry. And he resists at this moment. The devil leaves and Matthew adds this great little aha moment, this word behold. And behold, the angels then do come and they minister to Jesus. You know, the angels come and minister to Jesus. Uh, we imagine like they ministered to Elijah and feed him, get him strengthened and back on his feet. So I think as we learn to resist temptation, and again, this is just being tempted and working through this is just what it means. This is part of just being a Christian. This is not anything wild. It's just, it's just normal. It's laissez-faire for Christians. And so the healing of our vulnerabilities, I think during the season of Lent is a great time to look at it. The healing of our vulnerabilities as part of the work of resisting temptation becomes a priority for us, how we can do that. Jesus resisted temptation, not because he had like some divine, like Superman five-hour energy thing that allowed him to just, boom, you know, I just did stuff. But Jesus cultivated this. I mean, this is Jesus' character, the scripture that Emily quoted in her prayer. You know, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. The difference is without sin. He resisted and won the fight as a human being. That's what's glorious and beautiful. And because of that, he paves a way for us to do the same thing. Jesus did not fall in the same way that Adam did. Jesus did not fall in the same way that our ancestors in the wilderness did after 40 days, 40 years. They fell in this way. They succumbed to this temptation. Jesus does not. And that is why we hold him up and lift him up. This is why he becomes our pathway to resist temptation because he withstood. He knows exactly what it's like to feel what we feel. He knows exactly what it's like to struggle how we struggle. He knows exactly what it's like to be tempted with things that are subtle, that it's even hard for us to explain to other people because it's so twisted and subtle. So I think a couple of the ways that we do this, the first one is, I think, obvious in the first resistance point where Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, we, we learn to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We learn dependence. We learn to be acquainted with our hunger and our thirst. We learn to find it. We learn to recover it. Uh, sometimes we fast from things, from good things, uh, not just because, but so that we can regain that hunger and thirst. If I'm constantly satisfied with all the things of this world and I'm just full up on all that, it's harder for me to recognize my hunger and thirst for God because I convince myself in my twisted head, I don't need God anymore. I mean, I'm, things are going pretty well for me here in this world. And so our greatest hunger is not physical. And Jesus reminds us of that in this text. Also, if we're going to resist temptation, we will have to have friends. We will have to have a community around us. We will have to have specifically, I think, people who can be confessors for us. 
It doesn't just have to be pastors and priests. Our close friends that we can trust, that we know that when we tell them something, it's not going to circulate in the community, but it's going to stay right there in that living room or right there in that car, in that vehicle front seat. Martin Luther said when he was quite a ways along in his life, um, and Martin Luther, who was a priest, and, uh, you know, so many great writings on resisting temptation. But he said, you know, the devil would have ruined me a long time ago if it weren't for my opportunity to confess my sin. And he said, I just have to have it. I'd be ruined without that. And I love that so much because here Martin Luther is a priest that's leading this huge movement and uh, all, all across Germany and eventually the world. And he said, I'd be done for if I didn't confess my sins regularly to somebody. So uh, who did he find? You know, and he had friends and he had people that he could do that with. We have to do the same thing. And that's how we make it because it brings that stuff in the light. And what sounds obvious to us is, well, gosh, I guess that's what I'm going to have to do. And we say it out loud to a friend and they go, you don't have to do that. That's crazy. That's a temptation. That's not a gift. You know, and, and sometimes it takes somebody else to help us see that. So we will have to have friends and confessors. And then finally, we will we'll have to have regular communion with God. We'll have to have regular communion with the body of Christ, not just us gathered together as the body of Christ, but feasting on uh, the body of Christ uh, in, in the Eucharist, in Holy Communion, this regular communing and gathering together. This gives us strength and food for the journey that we are all on. And so let us together seek the healing of Jesus in our vulnerable places in this way, in these days, uh, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.